This is Minnesota Liberty, brought to you by the Libertarian Party of Minnesota, bringing you peace, prosperity, and freedom from the land of 10,000 lakes. Welcome to Minnesota Liberty, episode number three. My name is James Jenneman, and tonight I'm joined by Rebecca Whiting, the co-host. Rebecca, say hello. Hi. Um, and we are joined by none other than Jason Cleats, and of course, the great Travis Bull Johnson. Um, and tonight we're going to be talking about food sovereignty and sort of the struggles that uh, some of our farmers and homesteaders are having. Uh, Rebecca, as the homesteading queen and the and the farming maven, I'm going to let you kind of carry the discussion, though. So why don't you go ahead and get started with uh, introducing the guests and, and uh, the questions and stuff? Yeah, sure. So um, I obviously I know Bull in advance, and we have a lot of things in common. So I, why don't you just go ahead and you know describe what you do and the kind of farm you have and what your what your goals are on your farm. Right. Uh, well, my name is Travis Bull Johnson. Uh, I retired from the army in 2018, and one of the things when I had got out that I'd always wanted to do was always wanted to be self sufficient. I didn't want to depend on anybody else, uh, which is, is kind of ironic considering that we were able to get our start in farming because my in-laws basically had 40 acres and they said, hey, if y'all want to retire to Minnesota, we'll go ahead and give you your share of inheritance, which is approximately 40 acres now to retire to Minnesota and be around where we are. And uh, so we, we took them up on that on that opportunity. Uh, we had, we had quite a bit of money saved at that point. So when we got here, we went, we, uh, we built us a barn, uh, a, uh, 60 by 48 foot pole barn. And, uh, we started collecting animals for the most part. I mean, we currently raise cattle, uh, kinder goats, swine and, and poultry. Um, one of the things when you're dealing with a smaller farm, is you have to diversify. You have to have a lot of options because you know some years market will be good for one thing and it won't be good for another. So you have to have as many irons in the uh, the pot or as many sources of income coming in a, as possible. And uh, so what we decided to do is our mentality when we started doing this is we wanted a farm that was self-sustainable, but also let the art, the animals live their best lives. We didn't want to have confinement facilities. We wanted to have a as this old saying goes, the only bad day for our animals should be their last one. And uh, so that's kind of the mentality we took into this. Uh, back in 2020, when we were looking at building a, a shelter for our farm or, or a, a cattle shelter, I had to go to, uh, to the county uh, office for a building permit. At which point I found out that the, the location I wanted to put this horse shelter I wasn't allowed to put it there because it was too close to the road. I had to go 175 feet from the highway. And, and to me, that just didn't make a whole lot of sense. So, and I asked them, why do you need, why do you need to limit me 175 feet off of my property, um, my farm property? And nobody could really give me an answer. They always said, well, you can apply for a variance. And of course that costs more money. You weren't guaranteed to get it. And I said, well, no, what I wanted, I wanted an answer. Why do you need to limit my ability? And I decided to join to uh to go to a county commissioner's uh meeting, since they're the ones who signed these zoning regulations, to ask them. And they couldn't. 
basically after half an hour, 45 minutes of me demanding to know why they needed to limit my use to my property, the guy came back and said, well, we might want to make that road into a four-lane four lane highway one day, and we're going to need access to that land. We live on a dirt county road or a gravel county road. What do you mean you might want to make it into a four-lane highway? Okay? It made no sense. And, uh, and that's what actually drove me into politics. That's what drove me into, at that time, running for county commissioner, uh, which was in the middle of, uh, of COVID. And uh, we, we did a respectable showing. We did not win. Uh, but it kind of lit that fire under me to get involved. And, and it reminded me that, you know what, even though I am out of the Army, we still have to fight for our rights. We still have to fight for the rights of every American in the only thing that changed for me is what I wore every day. I took off the uniform. I was wearing farming clothes, but that battle hadn't stopped for freedom. All right, yeah, well, that's so, awesome. Um, Go ahead. I, I wanted to I wanted to touch on one thing, Bill. You mentioned that uh, that you wanted you you wanted to treat your animals as well as possible, and uh, you know have have only their last day be their be the the only bad day that they have. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that you know it used to just kind of be a hippie thing to to want to treat animals well and you know eat organic and all that stuff. What do you think <laughs> where do you think it came from, you know, that here kind of recently and Rebecca, this is a good question for you too. And Jason as someone who, you know, runs a, a health and and wellness um thing, uh maybe all of us have something to add. Um how did it come to pass that libertarians and even right-wingers now are kind of in this organic movement. Uh, Bull, you can start just because it was a well, question posed I, to you. I think a lot of it came from media. People never really looked at what their their food went through before it got to their, their dinner plates before. Once you start getting getting videos of, from in the news and, and undercover investigators that show the living conditions in these huge confinement facilities, a lot of people started going with started thinking about going, that's not right. I mean, that's yes, I, I love pork or I love, but my the animals shouldn't be going through that. And uh, and in fairness, in America, in the United States, we need those confinement facilities. We would never produce enough protein to feed America what Americans are used to eating without those confinement facilities, okay? Especially not for the price that they expect it to be. When I, It cost me a lot more money to produce a pound of pork than it will ever cost these, these people in these mass confinement facilities. They're, they're probably a fraction of the cost per head that it cost me. And of course, that cost does have to go on to the, the customer. So without these confinement facilities are the poorest Americans meat of any type would be some type of luxury that they could probably could never afford. So there is a need for it as long as we are consuming the way we're doing it. However, I believe that the American people have a right to decide whether they want their product to be raised that way. And they're going to have to understand that, hey, if I don't want it to be raised that way, I am going to have to pay a premium because people cannot raise animals on pasture for the same prices they can in a confinement facility. And I think a lot of people are starting to, 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 to take that into consideration. I mean, not all of them do. In fact, I had a, a customer a couple of weeks ago going, 
asked me how much I sold a dozen eggs for, and I told him four dollars a dozen. He's like, "Well, I can buy it for three dollars a dozen at, at, at Walmart." Well, then go to Walmart. You don't show up at the BMW dealership and demand them give you a BMW for the same price you pay for a Ford. Okay, so don't ask me to do the same thing with with my product. I got a superior product. I know I have a superior product. Don't expect me to sell it the same price as you would buy a Ford Festiva. And, uh, but I think that's kind of what brings it up to more people's attention is the fact that they now know about it. They were able to, without, without the internet, without stuff like that, they were able to ignore and pretend like it didn't exist because it was so far from them, but now they can see it. Speaking Rebecca, do you have anything uh, to add to that? I Jason? do. Uh, yeah. So, I do. Yeah, the food industry and the grocery store system um, is a relatively new idea in just the last few generations. I mean, before that, people existed on small family farms. So the regulations, the rules, the amount of cost that it takes nowadays to have to upkeep a farm is extraordinary. Where before, when grocery stores weren't um, accessible, you know, people had their own dairy cow, had their own chickens, they had their own space, and that was just the way everybody lived. And what you didn't have, you were able to access locally. Well, now our small local farms have just been taking a beating over the last decades to where to we almost, I mean, we're at risk at this point of them just not existing. And the ones that still do have to have some sort of outside income to keep being able to produce what they do on their farm. Um, and that's for our case, that's what's going on. My husband works, um, he's a heavy machinery diesel mechanic. He works off the farm. Um, I stay home. I also do farmer's markets. So be able to justify our farm, you know, like you said, diver diversifying. We do a lot of various different things to be able to, you know, to keep ourselves propped up um, from uh, chickens and baking and dairy cows. And so you, you kind of have to be a jack of all trades. But the I, I think that if we were able to, you know, shift the mentality and reduce the regulations, I looked into starting a micro dairy um, about three or four years ago. That's because Northern Minnesota, so I'm on the board for our farmer's market in Bemidji, Minnesota, and Northern Minnesota doesn't have where milk that you can get locally that's accessible. There just is nothing. And I looked into making a micro dairy because that was one of always the gaps that we had at our farmer's market. There just is no dairy products available locally. There's nothing. And um, I looked into what it would cost and what I needed to do to get a micro dairy kicked off. And like literally four to six cows in milk versus some of the bigger dairies that have two to 300 cows in milk at a time. All I wanted was to be able to um, have a few Jersey cows, be able to bottle up milk, make yogurt, make cheese, have things that I could take to the farmer's market. And we're looking at easily just the startup cost of being able to maintain and get the equipment, $250,000 so I can have a booth at a farmer's market. So if we had less rules, less regulation, less burden for a small family farm, we wouldn't have to depend 
on the commercial farming. And we wouldn't have to depend on the confinement and that kind of stuff. But they have created a situation that's strictly for the rules that small farmers have to jump through to make it so that, you know, they justify themselves by, um, you know, saying that they have to have those things, but it's strictly, it's, you know, they, they've created the situation. So. Yeah. Jason, it sounded like you wanted to chime in as well. What's up? Yeah. So in the sports and fitness area, what it comes down to for us is the science uh, over the last 20, 30 years now, people have been looking for an advantage. They've turned to science. So there's studies out there now that prove that eating fresher meat and meat that's not been processed in certain ways is better for your body, as well as you're looking at things like micros and macros and calorie counts and calorie deficits. You're paying attention to what you put in your body. You want to put the freshest possible ingredients you can into your body because you're spending all this time investing in yourself to create uh, an image and uh, a function to your body. You don't want to taint it with yeah, foods, uh... especially um, uh, processed things like hot dogs uh, that are loaded with sodium and other ingredients that you can't even pronounce. Uh, where you go to a, a farmer or a butcher who does natural and you don't have to worry about those other types of ingredients and unfortunately regulations do come at a cost and that cost is in the products that we buy so disproportionately it makes it more difficult for people to get better ingredients when they don't have the same means as others great thanks for that input jason um rebecca you had a you had something to ask or add yeah I think. I was going to talk about, um, I know, Travis, we've had a conversation in the past about um, like soil health and water mm -hmm. um, at our farms. And yeah. so one of the things that in modern day farming that is um, has become a challenge is a disproportionate um, nutrients and minerals in the soil. Um, and so that's something in northern Minnesota we deal with because of iron in the water. So um, I don't know if you want to like touch on that a little bit, um, you know, because it's not just a, you know, when you have a farm, it's not just you feed your animals and they grow and then you butcher. And there's a lot of working parts that go into it. So oh, oh there is. I mean, there's a we've had problems and this is not necessarily from the farming aspect. But we do have high iron content in our water and it does have a negative health impact on some of our animals, uh, especially some of our ruminants. When if we're if we're going to feed them, say, a wheat hay, that's going to have a little bit higher iron content. And then you add it to a high iron content in your water. And then we actually end up with some iron poisoning. And uh, we lost a baby goat to that this this past year where we've now had to figure out, okay, we have to, to, to change this a little bit. Uh, Cause again, this is well water. So we're not on city water. We're not on treated water. I mean, a lot of this iron seeps into the system from the, from the, the rocks. Okay. So I can't even blame it on, on farming in this area, but you do have to be a little bit more creative. So you have to do a little bit more of collecting water, which we can, luckily we can do, but there are areas in this country where, Collecting rainwater is not allowed. 
And if we couldn't do that, I mean, this would this would have an adverse effect on our animals. Uh, luckily, they couldn't tell us we can't collect snow because I wish they would tell us that and they can come and pick it up. I've still got four feet of snow on my pastures right now. Uh, but uh, and yeah, some of the animals will even will even eat on that. But when you when you are talking about a small farmer, as Rebecca said, we are a lot more dependent on that soil health. So we have to practice these sustainable practices because we can't afford to let a small piece of property go unoccupied for five or six years for it to regain its natural natural health, uh, its, its health naturally. I mean, we can't let it go, Pharaoh. We can't give it a year or two to rest. We have to be able to utilize every piece of our land that we can. And so why we have to take better care of it. Yeah, and uh, a ruminant is a sheep or a goat. So. Was that right, Rebecca? R ruminant is sheep or goat. Just so yeah. you know, yeah, so farmers out there can understand that. Thanks for clearing that up. This city boy had no yeah. idea what that was. Okay. Yeah. So, so what we do instead is I'll have my cows or my goats on a pasture for for a month or two. Then I will put them on another pasture and I will move chickens or pigs in there behind them. That now take all these cow patties, crush them up, spread them out, and that basically fertilizes the ground. And then I move them on and we'll move something else in. And that also does, it breaks up the parasites because when you have stomach worms or anything like that, it takes a month or so for them to go through their, their whole cycle from egg to adult. And if you break that up anytime in that month, that parasite cannot survive. So if you break them up and they don't get a month to be able to get reintroduced to the animal, well, again, guess what? That way you're not having to put poisons basically into your animals to kill off the parasites. Uh, but you know, this is something that we worry about a lot more as a small farmer, as a big farmer, it just may not be worth the, uh, the manpower to continuously move your animals like that. We can do so because, again, we have multiple species so that we can still ensure that our land is being utilized, but we just have to put a different animal on it or a different crop on it. Uh, so we, we basically have to take better care to maximize what we use our ground for without draining it of all nutrients. So we are going to be better stewards of the land because... I mean, we, it's not like we can, well, we screwed up this uh, thousand acres. We'll just get another thousand. That's not really an option for us. No. And to be clear, one thing I wanted to touch on too, is that um, with the, the parasites, the parasites are actually getting to be a bigger problem than they had been in the past because with the anti-parasitic medications and the overuse of them and the improper usage of them. And I think partially, um, you know, when you have, when you, raise animals in confinement, they're going to be more susceptible to parasites. And so then you're going to rely more on the chemical dewormers. And when you rely more on the chemical dewormers, the parasites become more resistant to the anti-parasitic medications. So medications that worked 20 years ago uh, just don't work the same in today's day and age. And so that's um, become a problem for us. Whereas that some of the like just kind of depending on what it is, there are some parasites that are just absolutely devastating to a herd. 
And they're really, um, there's just not much you can do about it once you have them. It's just, it's going to kill the animal once it gets to a certain point. There's nothing you can do. No. So now, I want to piggyback on something on that, but it goes off the, uh, the and it's something that's going to hit myself. It's going to hit Rebecca in the next 90 days or so. Uh, yeah. Starting in June, starting in June, Right now, if I have to give a animal some penicillin, I can run over to TSC, I can run over to Fleet, and I can pick up penicillin or some other type of antibiotic to treat my animal. Starting in June, we can no longer do that. Starting in June, we have to actually go through a vet, which there is a critical shortage of farm vets in this country right now. Yeah, there is. My particular farm vet, I'm lucky. I've had a relationship with them for two or three years. They're not accepting any new clients. If you're seeing that particular vet for your for your companion animals, your dogs and your cats, and you replace one, they're not even picking up that new animal. They are that busy right now. So, so if somebody who doesn't have that relationship with their vet, they're not going to be able to treat their their animals anymore. And why is this? It's because these these commercial facilities, for the longest time, just treated everybody, all their animals with antibiotics to prevent disease. But it developed all these. Now you have these uh, resistant strains of these diseases because both the the uh, commercial facilities and human doctors overprescribe these medications. You take a farmer like myself or like Rebecca, who we don't have very high overhead. I mean, a very high uh, surplus money running around. We're not going to pump these animals full of antibiotics unless we need to to save their lives. Yet we're the ones who are now going to be restricted to not be able to purchase these antibiotics. Because guess what? The commercial de- the commercial farms they have vets on staff. This is not going to affect them at all. The only people it is going to affect is the small producers who were not the ones who were overusing them anyway. And it's going to cost a lot of people some animals. And it may force some people out of doing this just because they can no longer take care of their animals because there, there is, as I said, a critical shortage of livestock <laughs> veterinarians where you can go and say, hey, I need a prescription for an antibiotic. I'm one of the lucky ones. Because I've got that relationship, I can pick up my phone and say, "Hey Sam, I, I need some penicillin," and she'll go, "Okay, prescriptions in, come pick it up." But a majority of small producers don't have that luxury, and, and the only reason I did is because I was smart enough that when I retired from the army, the first thing I did was call a vet, and say, "Come take a look at my farm. Come tell me what I need to do. Let's build this. Let's start this relationship off now before I need you." And that's the only thing that's that's saving me today. But for especially a lot of people just getting in, they're they're not gonna have that option. Well, and when animal when problems happen, it is always, always on a Friday night or a Saturday night. It is never, never between nine and five during the week. It is always when they are closed. And so being able to, because by the time like a like say you have a goat that's gone down and is not looking good. A goat can compensate for a very long time, but then when they start showing signs of sickness, they're pretty much already dead. So they rely on you being able to react very, very quickly to be able to recognize what they need and get it to them in a very short time window. 
And if you don't have access or the vet is just closed or quite frankly, tired and in bed, they are, you know, you're just going to lose that animal. And there's like not being able to have access to those medications um, is, is going to hurt. We had that um, same exact situation happen a week and a half ago. Thursday afternoon, we had a goat that was going downhill. We thought it was a dental problem. Called in, couldn't see her. She said, well, it'll be like a week from, from Tuesday. By Monday morning, this this goat had went downhill so fast. I'm on there with the vet going, hey, I need to bring her in now. He said, okay, come bring her on in at one. By noon the next day, it was the animal was dead. Uh, I mean, there was nothing we can do about it because by the time I was able to get them in there and they were able to put them on a high level antibiotic, uh, one that right now we can't buy in the soup in the, uh, the stores, it was too late to save the animal. And basically the animal died of strep. Uh, but I mean, this is those another case. If I would have been able to have the proper medications that Thursday, I don't know if we would have lost the animal. Yep. So but this is something um, that livestock farmers across the country, small farmers are going to have to start dealing with in June of this year, not because of a law, but because of a rule passed by the, by, by the FDA. Yep. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was that we had talked about restrictions on, you know, being able to access and build and or utilize your property properly. And that's something that we've experienced here because when we when we started building our farm, our our property was only accessible by a minimum maintenance road. And what that means is that it was just essentially two ruts in the ground where tires could usually get through. Um, but winter time, it wasn't maintained by county, township, nobody. So if you were going to plow that road, you had to plow it yourself. You were on your own when winter happened. They have since um, um, made the road a little better and made it a township road. So they put dirt on it. So it wasn't just ruts. But when they did that, we lost property. Um, we had to push our fence lines back and we had to adjust uh, because they were doing that. But we also have restrictions on where we can build, what we can build. Um, we have, you know, Minnesota or, and I'm not even sure if it's a federal or if it's a state thing, but, uh, with water and depending on wetlands, that kind of stuff, um, you know, you're just not able to do whatever you want to, to your property, even if it's, you know, for a good reason, or, you know, you can justify it for yourselves, but you know, there's somebody behind a desk that's just telling you, no, you're not allowed to do something. So what's been your experience, um, Travis with that? Well, I mean, I haven't had the issue with the water as much, but I mean, as far as dealing with the, uh, the zoning, it has been a, a, a nightmare and it's not because our guy who does zoning is a bad guy, but Polk County is one of the most restrictive counties in the state. As far as their building codes are concerned, uh, we've had, we've had a few issues and it just has been myself. I've got a friend of mine who, uh, they've been in the cannabis or the hemp business for the last few years. Of course, this past year, they passed a, a hemp bill, which allowed hemp CBD to be sold. And they opened the business within, within uh, the crooks and city limits, but his farm is outside in the non-incorporated area. Well, the, the county commissioners got 
together a couple months ago, and I went over there and tried to fight this, but they basically passed a moratorium on any hemp or cannabis-type businesses in unincorporated Polk County, which means his store in Crookston is, is okay because it's within the city limits, but his actually farm where he's actually producing the crop, testing the crop, he can no longer do because it's now illegal because of this moratorium that they passed on what he can do agriculturally wise on his property in an agriculturally zoned area. Uh, we were talking about right before this, I'm in the process of looking at getting a hoop house. Now, for those of you who don't know what a hoop house is, it's basically a metal or aluminum frame covered by clear plastic. It basically allows us to get our crops in the ground a little bit earlier in Minnesota and protect them from frost a little bit later in the year. So that when we have crops like pumpkins or watermelons or stuff like that, that takes a little bit longer to mature, we have the option of still growing those plants. Uh, this is so, and this is actually a agriculturally uh, prescribed uh, practice from the net, from NCRS, which is the conservation service because it protects soil health. I need to get a building permit to put up a hoop house. And I still, and I was going to put this on my homestead property, not my farm property. And for my home property, it's actually 200 feet from the road that I can't put this building. Now, I wanted to put it a little bit closer to the road because I wanted it outside my tree line so that it would prop, it would get the proper sun. Of course, of course, of course I'm, I'm surrounded by farm property. So I've got a tree line around most of my house to protect my property from the wind and the snow. So we wanted it a little bit forward where it would be outside that line. And of course, I cannot legally do so because it is within their right away and set aside limits. Now, uh, again, we start fighting this issue and go, why do you need this? Now, one of the excuses they came back and said, well, because we have to put it that far back in case a car runs off the road. It's supposed to be far enough away that the car will stop before it gets to this building and possibly causes injuries. I've got an eight and a half foot ditch around my property. The car ain't getting there. Okay. But it's still, it's one size fits all. So if you're along the side of, a, of this state highway that I'm on, you can't build within 200 feet of the road. And it just, it really limits us maximum, especially us smaller producers or smaller uh, property owners. It really limits what we can do with our limited property. Mm -hmm. And it really causes a hardship and nobody is willing to say what exactly is so serious that they have to take our rights away to our property. And, and that's the question I keep on going up there and asking. What exactly are you trying to protect us from that overrides my rights for my property? And they, and, they, and, they can never, and they can never seem to give an answer. I mean, uh, and, and it's a big issue for us, especially here in Minnesota, when, like, for instance, my prop, the instance I had on my farm property with this livestock shed. Well, it was also supposed to be used for hay, for hay uh, storage. Well, we wanted it towards the front, so in the middle of winter, I could get to it. If I got to put this hay, this hay storage two to 300 feet back on my property, that's areas I need to go out there and blow snow for to be able to get to in winter 
to get to the hay I need. It's not very efficient. And again, when you're yeah, a small, small farmer, efficiency is important. Uh, yeah, we when we when we get a significant well any snow we have it takes Keith about my husband um, three or four hours just to plow everything to be able to still get to the barn still get to the chickens still get to the hay just get down the driveway because our driveway is about an eighth of a mile long um, and being able to like get all that done so you know when you are putting things up you're putting things up knowing that you still have to be able to get there in the winter time you got to know what to do with the snow so it's uh it's there are challenges up where we live that other places in the country just don't experience and, and those those challenges are made harder by the government getting involved in things they don't need to get involved in yeah the road the ease or the not the right of way on our property is 50 feet all the way around. So when we only have six acres, so 50 feet is our front property line, our Southern line is only 400 feet. So if you're taking off 50 feet on either side, now you only have 300 feet to work with. You've lost 25% of your property. So, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty significant um, portion when you just you're I mean, six acres is a lot but you know when you start doing farming you run out of space very quickly i, I, I tell you if polk county is so bad that 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 building permit requirement includes temporary buildings temporary shelters so if i'm going to do a pull behind shelter that i can move to different pastures i need to get a building permit for it I'm of the opinion that we just we're kind of tucked back into the woods. And like I said, we were on a minimum maintenance road until like just the last few years. So nobody comes back here. We're way off the beaten trail. And uh, we just I'm like, oh, I know what these rules are. But, um, you know, I'm kind of betting on that. Nobody's going to drive by and be like, wait a second. That wasn't there. You know, I, I've gotten to the point where I am very good at building an eight by 12 foot shelter because it is 96 square feet and it doesn't fall under that unless it's hundred square feet or more. Yep. Okay? So yep. I, will have, I have a lot of 96 square foot shelters running around my property. Yeah. I think in our, in our um, township, it's 196 or 200, I think it's 200. So I can build a um, 12 by must be 12 by, I can't remember what it is. Anyways, do the math. And then I'm like, well, I just build that one. And then I build a second one. And then, oh, I don't know how they got smushed together. But now all of a sudden, I have a bigger shelter. So let's talk about, uh, let's talk about supply chains for a second. So during COVID, um, like everything was happening. It was just nuts. Slaughterhouses were burning down. And I don't know, Cloverfield was getting clover something uh it just seemed like everything was going to shit and it's only getting worse or maybe not what's going on with supply chains with the meat industry the eggs and inflation and all that uh well i'll go ahead and cover the eggs a little bit since i did a little bit of research on this over the past year uh avian bird flu has resulted in the the butchering or euthanizing of 58 million egg laying hens 58 million and the way this works is is these barns test their chickens and if one chicken comes down with avian flu they destroy the entire barn 
as far as every bird in there gets euthanized. Okay. Now on top of that, so that, that hurt us last year with egg production. It happened again in, in 2015, but not as bad. Now in 2015, and this is what people need to be aware of right now, to the, after 2015, avian flu basically disappeared from the United States. That did not happen after 2022. So there is a very real chance in the spring we will see another outbreak of avian flu that will affect this. And this affected uh, a couple, even here in Minnesota, there was one turkey barn that it affected, that they had to wipe out all of their, their turkeys. Uh, and it also happened on a backyard flock where somebody caught it and they came in and basically utilize, uh, euthanized all of that, that person's uh, chicken or multiple, multiple species of birds. Now, in conjunction with that, over the last year, we have had multiple burn downs of egg producing farms, uh, including one in, I believe it was December of last year here in Minnesota where a, a barn burned down that killed over 100,000 egg-laying birds. And what happens is, I mean, we've gotten so consolidated that if you get one case of bird flu on a, on a big egg-producing farm, it can have an immediate impact on the price of eggs across the country. How do we stop this? How do we fix this? We diversify. We have more small farms who are able to produce these eggs so that all your eggs aren't in the pun are not in one basket. Uh, <laughs> I don't like that one, I know. Uh, and, uh, but, but that's what happens. Is like, so we're, and remember, when you kill all these chickens, it takes 20 weeks. Well, it takes three weeks to hatch a chicken. And then 20 weeks before they get big enough so they can start laying eggs. So, I mean, you're basically looking at 20, almost, almost half a year to replace these birds that died. And then they still start off slower and then they build up with their egg production as life goes on. But then you're also making the situation worse because these eggs that you're now hatching for replacement birds are eggs that would have been put in the market otherwise. So you're already having a shortage in the market, and now you're shorting it even further because you need the eggs to raise these new chickens to replace what, what you killed off. And that's part of what our problems were with the eggs this past year, why you had that big issue. Uh, and we saw the same thing last year with, uh, with our, our meat production, or two years ago. You had... Uh, you had uh, a couple plants get shut down because of COVID. Well, this created a whole backlog because the way these these plants are built or utilized is built off just in time inventory. They are they have these animals getting here to be butchered when they're expected to be there. Well, guess what? The plant closes down. Well, those animals are still in route. So now you had euthanize euthanize a lot of these animals coming in, or what they did is the local, they flooded the local markets with them. We had that happen here in Minnesota with hogs, where a couple of big hog uh, plants basically sold 300-pound butcher hogs for $50 so they can get something out of them. Well, guess what? Everybody locally bought these hogs 
And then they brought them all to the, to the local processing plants that people like myself and Rebecca use to be able to get our product to market. So I went from having a 60 day waiting list to get a butcher date to 14 months. I had animals I couldn't even get processed because they were so flooded with these 50 pound hogs that these, these processors flooded the market with. And, uh, they're very, these mark, these processors, these custom local processors are few and far between. There is not a lot of them. And, uh, I've got a great relationship with mine and that's what helped me get through that time period. Uh, in case you haven't noticed relationships are everything when you're a small livestock producer. Okay. You have to have those relationships where you can call in that favor when you need it. Uh, but uh, they just talked to me this weekend because they came and picked up a bunch of birds from me and one of their best employees just left for another job and they can't replace her. So they're like, we're going to stay open. We're going to be okay, but our production is going to go down. Well, shit, I was already up to six. Or, we were just now getting to six or seven months to be able to get into there. And now their production is going to slow down. Uh, but again, it's because we've been having to work through this issue caused last, during COVID. I mean, and that's what happens when you put all your eggs in the one basket. But what really frustrates with me with that is I did some homework on that. These, these plants shut down, okay? What happened to the price of, of meat in your grocery stores? It, it went up, didn't it? For your steaks, your pork, everything else, prices went up because these plants shut down. You know what did not go down? Our exports. We still exported as much pork, as much beef as we ever do. There was no shortage. They had a 90-day stockpile waiting to go out to the stores. They were only closed for a few weeks. So, yeah, they jacked up the prices, threw everything else into, into all kind of a mess, but they didn't actually have a shortage. And so that, that gets into kind of sociopolitics there. I mean, as libertarians, we don't want to obviously be prohibiting exports. You know, I mean, a farmer in a slaughterhouse has got to make their money. But like, what's the solution there? How do we how do we prevent that from from happening going forward? Uh, to, one, one big way is to pass uh, Thomas Massey's Prime Act. What the Prime Act would do is right now. So say you came up to me and say, hey, I need 50 pounds of hamburger. Dude, I can't sell you 50 pounds of hamburger. Now, what I can tell you is an eighth of a cow. <laughs> of course. Okay. A All live right. cow, that, so that when it goes to get butchered, you get your meat back. Because you own that live animal, you can get that meat back. But I can't sell you the product. I cannot sell you the hamburger. I can tell you the live animal, and you have to do that before I drop it off at the butcher. With the prime, uh, because my butcher is not USDA certified, very few custom butchers are. What the Prime Act would do is that would allow the states to overrule that so that you can buy this meat from me through a custom butcher without it having to be USDA certified. That would actually encourage more butchers to open up, which would help diversify these issues we have. Because that's what happened is these big processors shut down. There's not enough small butcher shops to overcome the 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 uh, the flood of, of, of product. 
I mean, so can I add something to that really quick? Yeah. Um, in March of 2020, uh, the restrictions on exporting beef to be processed and then shipped back to the United States was, was lifted. So we were actually, um, shipping like the beef is grown here in the United States, but we're shipping it all the way to China to get it packaged and processed and then shipped back to the United States because it's cheaper to do that. Right. So that was one of the things that happened that changed in 2020. Um, but in Minnesota, I know like if I want to take um, our beef, our pork, our any, well, and white meat is a little different. So if I want to take any red meat to the market, to the farmer's market to sell, I have to do it at a USDA process, um, USDA inspected facility. Otherwise, I can't resell it legally. And there's other rules and things that go into that. But the, and this is another prime example of where the state has restricted, has made so many rules and restricted processors from being able to effectively manage, you know, the, the, what people have and be able to take them and then legally turn around and sell them. So the ones that pay for that isn't the huge processors. It's the small farmers like us that only have, you know, a pig or two extra during the year. And, but we don't, at this point, there's just no place for us to process it at, to be able to sell it. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, so we had, when these these butcher shop or these big custom uh, these big uh, processing plants shut down, the other thing people didn't realize is the price at the at the uh, the auctions for the livestock went down. It's not like it went higher. It's not like the process the producers were getting any much. The amount you get at the auction is controlled by the four biggest processors in the country who control over eighty five percent. Of all beef or pork being processed, and, and and they put so many barriers from us being able to go directly to the customer. That's where our issues are. I mean, they try and and they they use the excuse of safety. Oh, it's it's we have to go USDA because it, it's a lot safer. Well, I I got news for you. These big processing plants, the way it works is you may have eight to twelve processors. They look at this meat screaming by them on a processing line they have one to two seconds to look at that meat as it passes them so with eight or 12 processors they're going to look at this for a total of 25 to 30 seconds my cow when i bring it to my butcher my butcher is looking at that for three to four hours when it leaves her shop it's got my name on it and it's got her name on it it is not leaving her shop if there is any issues with that meat and she has a lot more time and a lot more attention to detail looking at it than a processor does in a in a big packing plant. It's a lot less hands touch that meat at my butcher shop between between time he comes out of the field and gets to your plate than does at a at a big commercial processing plant. It's not about safety, it's about control, and it's about managing the market. It's about prohibiting people from getting involved and get in entering the market so that it protects the, the interest share of Smithfield, who is based out of, uh, who's now owned by a Chinese company, JBS, which is Argentinian owned. I mean, these aren't even American companies that are holding the, that own these companies. Do you really want to get the MAGA people pissed off? There you go. 
So one thing I wanted, because we only have a few minutes left, but one thing I wanted to touch on was raw milk in the state, right? So um, I know that that's something that, you know, you have goats. Um, I have goats. We have dairy cows also. And that's kind of for me, because my involvement in the farmer's markets and what we already do, we have a small cottage and we didn't even really talk about this, but the cottage food industry in Minnesota that makes it possible for um, small producers to be able to bake and sell their goods without having a commercial facility and a commercially inspected facility. Um, but there's, so raw milk is different and all states um, federally manage this differently. But in Minnesota, you can sell raw milk. The problem is, is that people have to come to you and ask you if they if you have raw milk to sell. You're not allowed to um, advertise that you have raw milk. You're not allowed to give them your jars or sell them your jars. They have to bring their own jars and basically get the raw milk off the tap to be able to legally sell it. It's, it's very, and most people aren't going to drive 20 miles onto, you know, some backwoods rural road to come and get their, uh, their milk every week. And some will that's, and that's dedication, but for the most part, there's a lot of people and, that just, you know, it's, it's and, not and bring their empty enough. containers with them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And the, the people that do know that that's what they have to do to be able to get it because um, that's just the way the laws are written currently. So I have been working on a raw milk registra- uh, legislation that would make it legal to sell raw milk in Minnesota. And we'll see where that goes. We've been working on it for over a year now. And it's kind of going through all the hoops from Department of Ag in Minnesota. Um, but I'm hoping that in the end result will will be that we can take raw milk to the farmer's market and be able to sell it in a more accessible um, location like a farmer's market where everybody's coming to get their bread and their vegetables and their, you know, their other things anyways. They get their the milk farm. Yeah. Yep. And um, so, and I'm hoping that when it starts to go through and, and once it's, starting to change then anything that like um can be done in the future we can just keep adding to the legislation and freeing things up that's that's the goal um but you know what is for raw milk for you um how how often do people ask you i guess and you know how do you manage that Uh, unfortunately i haven't really fooled with it as much uh do i have the capability yeah i've got 25 or 26 what could be considered dairy dairy milk goats that we don't even bother milking right now for the most part because it is so hard for me to move that product uh which is really a shame because a lot of people in this country right now are lactose intolerant what people don't realize is is those who are lactose intolerant can normally drink goat's milk without any issues because the fat globulins are, are a different size so, I mean, there is a, a huge market here for goat milk, and people do ask about it, but because of all of the hoops we have to jump through, especially with the containers, uh, I haven't bothered with it very much. And when I have, I have charged 7 or $8 a gallon, and people were still willing to buy it at that. Well, eight dollars a gallon for goat's milk is a really good price. So, no, okay, maybe that's why. That's maybe a, I need that. Yeah, the, that's the an exceptional price. price. But, uh, 
Now, now the way I've gotten around that is when we do milk, is we'll do a lot of the, uh, the like the goat milk caramels or stuff like that, which actually mm -hmm. process it, and and it, it, uh, it still probably goes across against a few uh, regulations. However, <laughs> I will I will shut my mouth. At well, that you'll point. be glad to know that that's not. Yeah, candy okay. <laughs> and cottage foods uh, in Minnesota, that's actually legal, so you're good. <laughs> okay, I wasn't sure if it had to actually be legalized milk before we use that. So it means I got to add no. something to my mentor farmer's market now for, uh, <laughs> since I can't do the goat milk soap since somebody's already got that that uh, that market cornered at the farmer's market. <laughs> yep. But no, so yeah, so there, but there, again, there's another huge avenue for us and and we are looking at as future goes the future goes on we are looking at adding a uh, a milk tank to our barn so if we do want to go that route we can do so more easily but uh because then of course you have a milk tank where it's chilled immediately and it's a little bit easier when they bring their container to go up to the milk tank and just open the spigot and, and there you go but yeah i know we um so you have to be able to to be able to pasteurize it, to sell it. The smallest pasteurizer that you can buy in Minnesota that fits the regulations 10 years ago cost $30,000. So yep. it was like, that's why, once I sell realized it for, that, that's why you sell it for non-human consumption only wink, wink. Yeah. 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 There's just a certain way you got to do things, you know? So um, I think that we are pretty much out of time and thank you both for coming on here and talking about, uh, small farming. It's, it's a topic that, I mean, I can get oh, yeah. started talking and we just, I don't stop. So we, we both, we could probably, uh, last time I did one of these, I think we talked for two and a half hours. So, uh, <laughs> unfortunately uh, it's hard to shut me up to begin with, which means I'm probably an absolutely great politician, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I do want to thank y'all for having me on and, uh, it's really great to be able to see you guys because we don't get to see each other and talk to each other like this enough as it is. And uh, thanks very much. I appreciate it. And uh, now we just need to all get back and join the fight to keep uh, third parties on the ballot. Yep. Heck yeah. Uh, Jason, do you have anything to add um, as closing remarks? Uh, yeah. Just wanted to touch on the fact that buying raw milk is nearly impossible in this state. Um, these are regulations that make it more difficult for people to keep better health, uh, especially for those of us who are looking to improve our health. This is how we get caught up in the system of poor health and getting caught up into the pharmaceutical industry is by the foods we put into us. Uh, foods can be medicine at times and the government's regulating us out of the ability to put the proper medicines into us. All right. Great. Well, thanks for that input, Jason, and uh, best of luck in your, in your quest for health as well. I know that you've been going through it lately. So um, guys, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, you. Rebecca and I have a couple of announcements, so I'm going to go ahead and, and cut y'all off the, off the stream for now. And then um, we'll, get into the tech and what's to come next week. Uh, Rebecca, do you want to talk about what's happening on next week's episode of Minnesota Liberty? Yeah. So next week we're going to talk about um, gun control. There's been six gun control bills that were in the legislation this session. 
four, I think, if I'm remembering my numbers correctly. Anyways, whatever. there's two left. The rest have been tabled and there's two left. So next week we're going to have a couple of people on to talk about what's going on with gun control, um, just be able to, you know, buy, purchase, carry in general, anything that, uh, you know, questions that might come up, but that pertains to that. And then in addition to that, um, hopefully be talking about some convention planning because we have our Libertarian Party convention coming up um, mid-April. So, you know, kind of discussing what will be going on at conventions, speakers, that kind of stuff. So it'll be some uh, interesting podcast. Sweet. Um, and then just from the tech side of things, uh, you guys will, and by you guys, I mean the audience will notice that we're getting these uploaded quicker and quicker. Um, the uh, the party's access to the social media and YouTube and stuff like that is locked down pretty tight, rightfully so. Um, so we're getting that up, up and running. And I'm pleased to announce that just today I was able to get us on the audio feed. So you should be able to search for Minnesota Liberty on your favorite podcast app and listen to us there if nice. you would like to going forward. Um, the first three episodes, well, the first two episodes are already uploaded and this is the third episode and I'm gonna upload it right after we finish. Um, anything else, Rebecca, before we go? Oh, I think that's it. All right, sweet. Well, we will see you guys next week. Thanks so much for joining. Um, and once again, if you're not a party member, lpmn.org to sign up. It's only $5 a month and you can get your first month uh, for just that initial $5. So um, it's a pretty small investment for a great cause. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week.